It took seven years after I was baptized before Jesus could even introduce me to a loving father, meaning God the Father. Mm -hmm. Seven years. Seven years of falling and and being exhausted and just saying, I can't do this Christian thing anymore. And I would act out sexually and I would come to Jesus as a mess. And I was just, you know, I was so used to rejection, beginning with my father, the kids in school that called me names and the illicit lovers that I had for 20 years that would use me and I would use them. You know, so I thought that I could even wear out the patience of God. And I would come to to Jesus as I was dirty and defiled and just thinking, you know what? It's not working. This, you know, you got to let me go. Mm-hmm. And I would just, you know, say to God, you still want me? You, you see what I am. You saw what I did. And it was amazing because his answer was always the same. And he said, I love you, Mike. And I want you. I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That, a show that explores the motivations of biblical characters and how their choices can guide yours. Today's guest is perhaps one of the most infectious people I've ever met. I've had the truly blessed privilege of speaking with him at numerous events, and every time I sit down to listen to him, I know my heart is going to be touched. Today is no different. My guest is Michael Carducci. And without wanting to give too much away before the episode even begins, Michael's story has never been more relevant, never been more needed than it is now. And already we want to encourage you to take the few seconds necessary to share this episode with someone that you know needs to hear it, because you all know someone that will. Now, we've received countless messages from you all, stating that this podcast has been able to help you see yourself in Bible characters that you once thought you had nothing in common with. That's exciting. But on the flip side, one has to ask, is there anything more discouraging than seeing yourself in Bible characters that you wish you were nothing like. You'd think that King Solomon had everything anyone could want. He was the leader of God's people, the wisest man to have lived bar Christ. He had all the money in the world, yet he didn't have happiness. Vanity is what he called it. And perhaps the reason for that, his discontentment, Perhaps it stems from a little closer to home. Kind of interesting that he was the richest king and all that, and he had a lot of accolades that were really good about him, but the details of his early life and the relationship with his father, bam, I really kind of identified with that. Mm. And David was this man of mans, and he was a warrior, and... You know, he was, oh, that's interesting. He was a musician. Mm. My dad was a jazz musician in the Navy for 10 years. Yeah. So another, you know, revelation there. Mm. So here he is, this artist, musician, very successful, warrior, macho. You know, he had all of that going on. And then when I look at the relationship that he had with Solomon and I read about Solomon, I was kind of um, disappointed as Mm. I read Solomon because I thought, oh, that's me. So the relationship that David even had with his son, even David on his deathbed, said to Solomon, listen, push it up a little bit, you know, be a man. And um, that's kind of how I felt with my dad, you know, growing up is that I never hit that mark. I was never, you know, manly enough. I remember one time um, he made this comment. We were getting ready to go to church and he came in. I was about 15, 16 years old. And he said, those pants make your backside look like a girl. It was just a simple comment. And to anybody else, that wouldn't have meant anything. But to me, it was just another emasculating comment. It's interesting, as I um, became a Christian at 40, the two questions that I had for Jesus were simply, I want to know why at four years old, I was transgender. I want to know why at four years old, four years old, my first conscious thought was that I was a girl and not a boy. And yet I had three sisters and I knew I wasn't like them. 
And yet I wasn't like, you know, the boys in the neighborhood either. But um, that was my first conscious thought. And it wasn't until in my 40s, as I was pursuing Jesus Christ, that I actually found out through science, there's this thing called defensive detachment, which basically means that, you know, little boys before they're conscious, uh, between the ages of one and three, they start to realize that they're different than their mom. Mm -hmm. And that if there's a healthy father in the home, there's a transition that has to be made between the the male child and the father. And, you know, that that has to be done also with the girl, but it's just a little bit different because it's about identity. Mm -hmm. When little boys start to realize that they're not like their mom and that they're like their dad, that's why little boys like to wear baseball caps and cowboy boots, you know, they want to imitate their father. Right. And all of that is just healthy masculine identity. Mm -hmm. And so if this transition isn't met, then that means that the boy doesn't have that male affirmation. And so the boy can either identify after the female or the mom uh, becomes more feminine in that development or maybe attaches to an older brother or an uncle or some other male that they can identify with. This is the whole reason why we do this podcast. Because we all have questions. We all wonder, why did they do that? And here's perhaps one of the most profound answers you'll ever receive. Why did Solomon make the mistakes he did? Why did he erect idols? Why did he turn to a thousand women? Perhaps because that's the example of what a man was that he saw at home. Perhaps because for years, and no doubt these stories have been passed down, David served God when it was convenient and served his own lusts when he wanted to. Perhaps because David himself had numerous wives and women in the home. And perhaps the apple really doesn't fall that far from the tree. And Solomon was simply following in his father's messy footsteps. My dad was a, a Navy musician, so he would be gone sometimes three to six months at a time. So if I'm between the ages of one and three, that's a long time, you know, a large part of my life. But then when my dad was home, he was Italian. He was angry. He was loud. He was, you know, even physically abusive. Whereas my mom was kind of chill and she was quiet and she was, you know, stable and there. So I think that in my, in my subconscious mind that I determined that he either wasn't available for me or he was abusive. And so if that's my male role model, mm. I rejected it. And that's why it's called defensive detachment, meaning that in my defense, I detached from him as my role model. So by the time I was four years old, I was already imitating my mother wanted to walk like her, talk like her, mm. be like her. So of course I had these effeminate mannerisms, but when I became conscious, I had already identified with the female side and rejected the male side. So it's interesting. Um, I know who, who knows what Solomon was going through. His uh -huh. dad wasn't available either. You know, he was off fighting these wars and things like that. And uh, I also knew that there was a hereditary component as well as an environmental component. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference was that my dad being very macho, you know, machismo, Italian, that kind of thing. And in that culture, you know, here he was in the Navy and then he became a police officer. Um, and then you have this sensitive child that, you know, is somewhat effeminate or just not into manly things. So, you know, there was a, a lot of competition with my dad from early on up. And how did you... Um... Or rather, how did he, because he would have seen this, right? Yeah. You know, because I, I would imagine that it would become pretty obvious eventually. Yep. Uh-huh. Um, what, what do you think were his approaches in, in combating that and, and how did that go down? I'm so glad that you brought that up, Dean, because I really like to bring out the fact that, you know, my dad really tried to compensate for <laughs> what he was seeing in his only son. He yeah. had four children, three girls, and me. And I was named after him. You know, he's mm. so proud to have a son. So I have his name. So when he saw these effeminate mannerisms, I remember my dad taking me out and, you know, to shoot a gun. And that was so aggressive to me. And it was loud and it was shocking. Mm. So I wasn't intrigued by that. And I wasn't interested in that. All it did was reinforce to me that masculinity is aggressive. Mm. It's hostile. So I, I really just wanted nothing to do with that. So then also being a cop, he would 
he would attack trained German shepherds for guard duty. And I remember he would take me to where they would do that. And not my sisters, it was just me. And I remember seeing all these beautiful dogs and I just wanted to pet them. I just wanted to play with them, but you couldn't go near them Mm -hmm. because they were attack training them and they were attacking these people and ripping up their clothes and their sleeves. And so again, what it said to me, I I think my dad overcompensated because what it said to me was that masculinity was harsh and cruel and, and yeah, um, unattractive. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, obviously you can look, but anyone can look back in hindsight and say, oh, could have done this differently. But what do you think might have worked? Like, let's say you're in that situation. What would be the approach that you think would be better? That's great. And, and I have a story to tell you. Um, there was a, a father that called me and it's been a couple of years. And he said his son was four years old. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, my son told his mother last night that he was a girl. And the mother said, no, you're a boy. And he's only four years old. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, I'm a girl. He insisted that he was a girl. So my friend asked me, is my son transgender? Is my son gay? And I said, no. I said, he's just identifying by, you know, the parent that's with him. I said, how much time do you spend with your son? And he said, well, you know, I work late. I get home late. And a lot of times my son's already in bed. And I said, well, on the weekends, you know, when you're off, how much time are you spending with your son? Do you do special things with him? And then he admitted to me what I believe was really the issue Mm. is he said, well, I'll be honest with you. My son's personality kind of gets on my nerves. So I find myself not wanting to spend time with him. And I said, bingo. I said, your son, even subconsciously is picking up on this rejection, even though you haven't verbalized it. I said, you've demonstrated that non-verbally with the fact that you're not available. Mm. So your son has rejected you because he feels rejected by you. And so he's identifying with his mom. She's the one that loves him, takes care of him, nurtures him, comforts him. And I said, it's not too late. I said, you're going to have to be available. You're going to have to come home at five o'clock. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have to be the one that helps him at bath time. You're going to help have to be the one that, you know, puts him to bed at night and does, you know, family worship and that kind of thing. And you need to spend time with him, not, you know, doing aggressive male things. I said, but doing things that don't compromise masculine identity, but that are things that he likes to do, like maybe coloring in his coloring book with Mm -hmm. him, you know, reading him stories, going on walks with him, trying to help him to realize that masculinity isn't something so far away or that it's something that's desirable. Mm -hmm. And I said, and don't expect any, you know, quick changes. I said, this could take years. Many times, Dean, many times I felt this. And I've also talked to uh, many other men that, you know, rejected their father or had defensive detachment that they said um, that maybe their father reached out to them when they were 16 or maybe they they tried when they were in their teens. And I remember my attitude was too little, too late. Yeah. Like it's done. But I think at four years old, there was still some hope. So Mm -hmm. um, this man, he started doing what I suggested and, you know, we were praying about it because I think that that was really where the difference was to really pray about that and ask the Lord to give him ideas and how to spend time with his son. And he called me just six months later. Mm. And he said, Mike, he said, I just had to tell you, I've been doing what you said. I've been spending more time with my son. I'm home at five o'clock. And just last night, we were getting ready to go to bed. And my son came up to me and he said, come on, dad, let's hide from mom because we're boys. Mm. In that simple statement, you know, Dean, you can see the power of the influence of a father's affirmation to his son. Yeah. And, you know, I I didn't have that with my dad. I think my dad kind of, overshot the mark by showing me aggressive masculinity, thinking that that would help to adjust me. (laughs) When really, if my dad would have just spent quality time with me, coloring in my coloring book, you know, I think that I would have seen masculinity as desirable Mm -hmm. and as something that was attainable. Um, a, A therapist told me this about a year ago and I balked at it. She said, um, relationships form our identity. I said, no way. And I, you know, I thought I was transgender at four and then I was gay at 13 and all of this stuff. I thought those were my choices. But then as I thought about it, it really is true. Mm. The defensive detachment between my father and me, I believe that was what really sent me on this trajectory of identity and sexuality um, disconnect. So at four years old, the reason why I thought I was a girl was because I rejected his masculinity because Mm it wasn't available or attainable or desirable to me. So then at 13, the problem wasn't that I wanted to be a girl, but the problem was I wanted to be 
loved by my father. And then I wanted to be loved by the boys in school or accepted by the boys in school that called me sissy, queer, you know, little girl and all these other names. So at 13, when when that emptiness, that lack of male bonding and male affirmation, it became sexualized by puberty. And so I thought, again, um, that my sexual attraction to same sex was something that I was born with when really it was this deficiency mm. of male affirmation, male bonding and and love that I didn't receive from my dad or the kids in school. It's interesting that, that you bring that up because, um, so I have a, a younger brother who's six years younger than me and he's gay also. And um, when we were, when we were younger, neither of us had our, we don't have the same dad and neither of our dads were ever really in our life. Um, and like with him, like I never knew my dad, never, he was never in the picture. His dad was for a short period of time and then came up with this outlandish story that he wasn't his son and, and left. And um, so I don't know how much of that my brother remembered, but he at least grew up knowing that his dad walked out on him. Um, and then my mom, my mom got married to someone who was neither of our fathers. And um, my brother kind of assimilated that that was his dad now, naturally. Um, she was married for eight years to this man. And then he left. Um, and it was around about that time um, when he was 10, 11, 12, that he started to, to very obviously change in terms of his identity. And because um, he, he, when he was young, he would be like, this guy would be like six or seven years old and have a girlfriend at school, you know, and, and come home talking about his girlfriend and how they were holding hands in the playground and all that stuff. And that just started to stop. And then, um, you know, he went to school, uh, a different school outside the area we grew up, because the area that we grew up in, homosexuality was not acceptable. You know, it was a very um, aggressive environment. Um, so he, he left, left London, went to a different school, and um, everyone there was very affirming as he was, as he was coming to grips with the fact that, like, his dad left um, both times. And, um, yeah, he, he, he started to think maybe he was gay and then everyone around him was telling him he was cause his voice was a little higher and he was a little skinny, um, and slightly effeminate. And now he's very much, he's very much in that lifestyle. Um, and, and it's often kind of puzzled me because we grew up in almost exactly the same environment very similar stories and that we only really had our, our mother as an anchor. Um, I, I definitely had more male friends than he did, um, but I would avoid everyone's father because it was just like a, a prick at my heart. You know, you'd go into someone's house and they'd be there with their dad and it would remind you that you, you, don't, you don't have that. Mm. Um, and I, I used to always just wonder how is it that he went down that path and, and I went down a completely different one. And I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense because it's not, it's not a switch. You know, it's not like, like when David comes to Solomon, it's like, be a man. Well, it's, it's not the case of just, oh, I'm not being a man. Oh, okay, cool. I'll just be a man. This is something that's happening over a long period of time due to multiple factors. And one can't just change. Like, you know, this, this is something as you're describing that it's, it's more than just a thought process. This is, who that person is. Well, it has a history. Right. There was much to undo to make that statement real. Right. You know, to be a man, it's like we, we have to look at the past. We have to look at all of those wounds and those hurts or whatever. In your brother's situation, it's apparent to me that relationships form our identity. Yeah. Even broken relationships, even relationships that ended. You know, your, your brother was abandoned by his birth father and then he was abandoned also by the stepfather. And it's interesting also that um, here your brother ended up being gay and you did not. And that also shows that there are some personalities that can survive that. And that doesn't mean being that you don't have issues in other areas. Right. Like you said, you know, when you saw other kids with their fathers, you know, there was this defensiveness or this prick to your heart because that was identifying this loss because, you know, relationships were forming your identity yeah. also that men can't be trusted or men aren't available or whatever that is. It's interesting how everybody has a different take on that. Um, 
But yeah, I still hold true that relationships form our identity. Relationships form identity. It's easy to look at someone and say, do better. But have they seen better? Is their life filled with examples of better? David lays on his deathbed, looks at Solomon and says, Son, be a man. And everyone's example of manliness is David. Because from a youth he was brave and courageous. He was victorious in his battles. His fame rose as he took the lives of thousands of other men at war. Songs were written about him. He's strong and macho and he's an entertainer too, a poet and a musician. And then he starts showing what happens when you take masculinity way too far. He becomes manipulative. He abuses his power. He gets jealous and lusts for more, lusts for the forbidden. He goes from war hero to murderer. He takes another man's wife, rapes her, impregnates her, kills her husband, leaves God outside for two years, and deals with things in his own way. So yeah, Solomon, be a man. I remember this desperation, you know, to because I if I had this deficit of male love, that was really what was desiring to be satisfied. So when I was um, 15 years old, I went to a Christian boarding school. Mm -hmm. And in the Christian boarding school, I had a roommate who'd been through juvenile detention. So he was familiar with homosexual behavior. And um, one night our wrestling turned into my first sexual experience. Mm -hmm. um, I was shocked. I was incredibly um, disappointed by my behavior. And yet I couldn't deny the fact that it felt good. I couldn't deny that it actually satisfied this deep, dark craving for, you know, male love. And because that had become sexualized through uh, fantasy and masturbation at the time that I was 13, um, again, I think it's pretty normal for somebody to assume or to think that this must be who I am. And mm -hmm. it was so powerful, Dean, the power of what um, sex does. You know, the Bible says that two become one. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says that, even when a man has sex with a prostitute, the same thing applies. The two become one because that's the power of what the senses do and sexual experience with sexual releases and the dopamine, you know, that's released in the back of the brain. All of that affirms and locks you into this, um, these thoughts and these feelings. So at the point when I was 15, I still wanted to be a Christian. I went through the motions of being everything that I thought God wanted me to be. Mm. I got a girlfriend. I became a religious uh, leader in my school. Uh, I graduated from high school, went to college, dropped out after a year, and I just, I was just exhausted. Uh, there was one man that I thought I could, you know, confide in. I picked him. I handpicked him after, um, after church one day, and I sat down and I talked to him and I said, "Hey, can I talk to you?" And he said, "Sure, Mike. What's up?" And and I said, "It's about women." And before I said another word. He said something so degrading about women, I knew I couldn't trust him with my secret. Mm. And I listened to him. I thanked him for his time. When I walked out of church that night, I said to God, I'm done. Mm. I'm done. I can't get my religion and my sexuality to come together. You haven't helped me. And so that was it. And yeah, I went to into the, the gay culture. They had their arms open wide. I, I remember um, the first night that I happened to stumble upon a gay bar and I asked the security guard you know what kind of bar it was and I just wanted to know if I had to pay for food when I went in and he said you know are you asking is it a gay bar and I said well no but is it and he said yeah and I went home that night but I was there a week later and I was talking about this this shuddering my body was literally shuddering as I went into this club and as I was standing there in shock um, because I was actually going into this territory that I knew that God wasn't approving of. Mm -hmm. But as I was there, I knew that I was hooked. I knew that I was stepping into a place that that I was just going to have no control over. And that started 20 years of living in the gay culture. Mm -hmm. And um, it didn't take long, you know, before I forgot all of the, the things that I had loved about God. I wanted to be... Um, a spiritual person. I wanted to be a good Christian. I loved Jesus. I wanted to give him my whole heart. And I remember that all of the principles that I had learned from the 
time that I was baptized at 15 until I was 20, oof, they were almost yeah. immediately gone as I went into that culture. Well, sure, if, if I'm sleeping with men, then, you know, who cares about going to church or when you go to church or, you know, how you live? It, it all doesn't matter. You're going to hell, so you may as well just go big, right? Mm. And, and I remember a lot of times my behavior was really uh, connected to that. Well, if I'm going to die, if I'm not going to, you know, live eternally, then I better have a good time while I'm here. Right. And I'm young, you know, and you're only going to have your youth for a certain amount of time. Yeah, you better take advantage of every opportunity. And so it was for the wisest man in all of Israel. One day you're writing love songs about the woman you want to marry. Next thing you know, you're married to 700 of them. One day you're writing inspired counsel on how to live one's life. And moments later, you're turning your back on all of that to do whatever you want. This is Satan's ploy. To get you comfortable in the faith, to build up your reputation so that others look to you and then pull you down for everyone to see so that in your now distressed and deceived mind, the only thing you can do is go further into sin. And for Michael Carducci, well, this was only the tip of the iceberg. We'll be right back. I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That. One of our favorite companies to work with is called Types and Symbols, a design company based out of Michigan. Their mission is to repackage the message of Christ in the most beautiful and attractive way possible. With that, they are gearing up for the third printing of the best set of books I've personally ever owned. This five book collection is called The Conflict Beautiful. And the only real conflict here is whether you should buy it now or wait until the end of this episode. These five books, along with the Word of God, can completely change your understanding of God, of yourself, and of why we're even here. We like asking why. So why wait? Visit theconflictbeautiful.com now and you can save $30 if you pre-order before June 4. If you're a young person, figuring out where to go to school for college can be a challenge. You want a quality education, but you also want it to be God-centered. You want to make good friends, but you probably also want to avoid negative influences. You'd like a university that isn't so big you'll get lost, but isn't so small that you're there by yourself. Then maybe Weimar University is for you. Located at the foothills of the Sierra Mountains, Weimar offers some fantastic associate, bachelor, and even master degree level programs that are all grounded in the Word of God. As they like to put it, they are uncompromisingly scientific and unapologetically biblical. If that sounds like something you're interested in, or more importantly, something that God is calling you to, visit weimar.edu. People leave God all the time, and you'll hear a lot of what we call excuses. Well, this Christian person hurt me, this pastor said something, and we always say the same thing. Go to church for God, not for the people. And without wanting to validate certain excuses, the reality is that most of the time we see God, it's through people. The reality is that many people leave the church not because of bitterness or anger or frustration, but because within the church, they were not loved on. People didn't give them the time of day, welcome them in, get to know them, eat with them, sit with them. And, and when we don't, the world will often entice them with open arms. And by then, well, by then it's too late for us. The further I went into that culture, the further I went into that life, um, it was like 
I was getting all of these things that I'd never had before. I was getting affirmation. I became a hairdresser and I was doing television, people's hair, and I was getting all these accolades. I was making a quarter of a million dollars every year. I had a condo on a lake with a, a boat. I had a house with a pool. I had a convertible Mercedes. I had everything that the world said was valuable. I was going on great trips. My best friend was the head anchor for NBC in Orlando. Um, I had a boyfriend that was a millionaire that ran four radio stations. And so there would be times I was turning 40 years old and thinking to myself, well, I haven't got AIDS yet. And there were times when I would act out sexually with men that I knew were infected and they would be dead a month later. And yet wow. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop this Russian roulette of these sexual encounters with these men, uh, even though I was in a really great relationship. But I would think about God and I would think about, you know, have I gone too far? And I would just look at my life. I wasn't even honest with my sexual addiction with my boyfriend, let alone with God. And, you know, the fact that I was, you know, in a relationship with a man. And I say, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm gone. There's mm. no hope for me. But I still believe that that was the Holy Spirit really still trying to reach out to me. Um, because a year later, and because my sisters were praying for me, my sisters they didn't stop. My sisters were amazing. They never uh, stuck their finger in my face and told me that I was going to go to hell for what I did. They never judged me. As a matter of fact, my sister worked for me in my salon that I had, you know, with my my partner who was, you know, my business partner also. And um, she worked with me. I had other gay hairdressers in my salon and she always treated us all the same. Mm. And it was so Christ-like. I thought that she accepted me in my gay culture. I thought she was fine with it. But secretly, she was praying for me on her knees that God would reach me. And I believe that those prayers are what really gave me that second chance when I was 40 years old. So how did that come about? Like, you know, you're very much in this lifestyle, as you've described. And then yet at the back of, you know, your mind, there's this voice that now and then is prompting you. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny that the Bible says that God's ways are not my ways mm -hmm. and his thoughts are not my thoughts. And... um my sister just randomly invited me to an evangelistic series. And a couple of things had happened um, before that, that the Lord was really working on my heart. And when the Lord told my sister to invite me to this evangelistic series, she thought, he'll never go. Like she saw how wild I was and how out there I was, but she obeyed and she asked me. Just a month before that, my other sister in Colorado had gotten remarried to her ex-husband and I was livid. I was angry, so angry. And I went out there for the wedding, not to support my sister because I thought she was a fool, you know, to remarry this guy that had been unfaithful to her and all this other stuff. Never liked the guy anyway. But when I went to the wedding, I remember the day before they got married, um, they asked me, you know, if I would go to church because her husband was getting baptized. And I went to that church and I was taking pictures. And I think, you know what? I think my sister had um, had a plan because she she knew that if I went there to take pictures, then I would have to sit through the sermon. I don't know what, but <laughs> I was sitting there um, with my enlightened attitude, thinking that Christianity was for losers. And as I'm sitting there, I watched this man that I hate come into the baptismal. And before he was baptized, he took the microphone and he wanted to say something. And I thought to myself, what is this jerk going to say? Mm -hmm. And when he took the microphone, Dean, he said, he said, I want to make an open confession to what I've done. And he shared that he'd been sleeping around with other women, that he'd been unfaithful to his wife. Uh, he, he asked forgiveness to the church for having to take care financially of his family because when he left my sister, he didn't pay the bills. He didn't pay any child support. He, he made this announcement. He said, I don't want to be a husband or father anymore. And he was gone for three years. And he asked for them their forgiveness. He thanked them for taking care of his family while he was gone. And he said this thing, he said, I want to make it right with God today so that I can make it right to Laura tomorrow. And these tears were just streaming down my face. And I'm looking at this man that I hate, mm. this man that I absolutely hated that, and, and, and I saw the Holy Spirit in him and I knew that that wasn't him. And honestly, Dean, that was the beginning of my, my conversion. Wow. A month later, Back in Florida, my sister invited me to this evangelistic series, and I started going. And within a month, I was baptized with a boyfriend and a sexual addiction. 
And when I came up out of that water, I was still gay. I wasn't straight, ready to marry women and have children. <laughs> and I was beginning this very messy, dirty, filthy walk with Jesus Christ. The baptismal water wasn't holy water. And I think we do a disservice to people with that expectation that now that you're baptized, you should have it all worked out. I mean, that really was the beginning for me. And um, I was terrified that somebody in the church might know that I was in a relationship. So I, I would always leave before the closing song was done. And um, it was interesting. I actually found some other men that were going through the same thing that I was. And we were kind of in this Christian purgatory, if you were, you know, if you would. We weren't sure that we were, you know, going to leave the gay life, leave our boyfriends. We were kind of like going through the motions of going to church. We were experiencing Jesus on a whole new level. And yet still holding on to a lot of the things that identified us and defined us um, because that's what that culture demands is that your whole life is surrounded by your attractions and your, you know, your gay identity. So I created that for over 20 years. So, um, But as we were walking this out, the Lord started putting some real genuine people in my path that were loving and patient and long-suffering and kind and sometimes ignorant about what really goes on in somebody that's sexually addicted or, or you know, homosexual in their minds. But their patience and their um, dedication, I guess, to the Lord and then to me really, you know, made the difference. But it wasn't immediate, Dean, and I can't pinpoint a moment where the lights came on and it was like, okay, that's it. It was kind of a progressive surrendering of things. And as I would surrender those things, then the Lord would bless me copiously with peace, freedom, um, compassion, and really started to change, you know, how I saw my boyfriend, how I saw my family, how I saw my clients. And certainly even how I saw him. But still, even to that point, it took seven years after I was baptized before Jesus could even introduce me to a loving father, meaning God the Father. Mm -hmm. Seven years. Seven years of falling and and being exhausted and just saying, I can't do this Christian thing anymore. And I would act out sexually and I would come to Jesus as a mess. And I would just, you know, I was so used to rejection, beginning with my father, the kids in school that called me names. And the illicit lovers that I had for 20 years that would use me and I would use them. You know, so I thought that I could even wear out the patience of God and I would come to to Jesus as I was dirty and defiled and just thinking, you know what, it's not working. This, you know, you got to let me go. And I would just, you know, say to God, you still want me? You, You see what I am. You saw what I did. And it was amazing because his answer was always the same. And he said, I love you, Mike, and I want you. And I'm willing to walk this out with you as long as it takes. And because of his faithfulness to me that he didn't run. And and I was, you know, I was hoping he would because my sexual addiction was a lot more fun than walking this Christian life. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't deny the fact that his love was what really kept me hanging on, his dedication to me. And then as I accepted him more and more and, and read the word of God and saw these promises, and as I would hold on to those promises as precious, that he promised to take away, you know, my temptations. He didn't promise to take away my history and my memory. And those were intact. I have 20 years of living sexually addicted where I was acting out, you know, a lot. Um, But while I still have those temptations, God has shown me what I can do with those temptations so that they don't overcome me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like I'll probably live with that for the rest of my life. But if he didn't give me something better, I wouldn't be here. I couldn't stay. It's been 22 years. And what if that is it right there? Instead of looking for cures, instead of shaming or mocking, instead of compromising, what if we gave something better? What if we offered something better? And I don't just mean verbally. What if we demonstrated and lived something better? What if David was a better man for his son's sake? Sure, Solomon might still have gone astray, might still have married a million women and erected an idol on every street corner. 
something tells me that he wouldn't have. Something tells me that had Solomon looked up and seen a loving, caring, devoted, spiritually consistent, present father, he would have chosen a different path. That relationship that Solomon had with his dad, I just kept mirroring. And as I was reading the word and I started identifying with King Solomon, and then when I looked at his relationship with his father, where his father on his deathbed said, listen, be a man and, and man up, God blessed him not only with, you know, wisdom, but he also gave him financial success. He was, you know, the wealthiest king and and Solomon went so far away from God. And I get that. And and then when he came back, of course, you know, Solomon regretted all of the years that were lost. And I can't help but feel the same because when, you know, I told you that when I went to this Christian college, I took all of my religion requirements in the first year, not not to just get that out of the way, but because I was desperately looking for answers to the questions that I had. Mm. And I was sincere. I really wanted to follow God completely. But I do see the benefit, and it wasn't God's plan that I would go 20 years into the gay life, but I do see the benefit of that time to know that I went so far and so dark and so deep. And even though I had financial success and I had a lot of accolades with the world, um, you know, by by anybody's worldly standard, I would be a success. But inside, I was absolutely destitute. I, I only objectified anybody that I saw. I only, you know, was out for what I could gain or what I could get. And I realize now, looking back after you know twenty-two years of of walking as a Christian, that, um, yeah, there was great time that I could have really dedicated to God and to His service. But, um, if it was necessary to go through all that, and I'm shocked that God in his mercy and long suffering would extend this rope out and allow me 20 years of living in the gay culture to know that he was going to draw me back. And it's interesting because at 17 years old, um, I prayed that God would just take my life. I was done. I didn't want to live. I, I knew what was coming. I was graduating from high school. Um, already the gay rights were, you know, uh, consolidating and building, you know, force back in the seventies. And, um, I remember knowing in my heart that this was the direction that I was going to go, you know, if God didn't really intervene. And so I just prayed and I said, I don't want to, I don't want to go through that. Just take me now. But I was still struggling with masturbation and fantasy and these thoughts in my head or whatever. So I wasn't ready, but isn't it amazing that he let that rope out and I put Jesus through hell, you know, with all of the behaviors that I did on a daily basis. And for 20 years and for all the suffering that Jesus had to do for that so that he could actually bring me back after all that, I'm still amazed. Mm -hmm. I'm still amazed that his mercy is new every day. Um, I see the benefit of it, but it's so wasted. Yeah. And I'm so sorry. But um, what that does is that makes me more determined to, um, I can't make up for what's past. But what if I live more dedicated today? those principles to be in my heart and to maybe help somebody else that may be struggling or maybe even somebody who's not struggling. Maybe they, they don't see the love of Jesus or the love of God. And so let me be so dedicated and so connected to him that I would have the opportunity that maybe somebody could see, you know, the merits of a risen savior in me so that they would know that, that God hasn't rejected them and that it's not too late for them. So was Solomon's life a waste? I don't think so. I'm shocked that, that God would, number one, want him, and that, number two, that God could save him from all of that. And I identify completely with that. The title of this podcast asks the question, what is a man? And society will always present us with the extremes, no? On one side, you'll get Dylan Mulvaney that hyper-feminizes masculinity and then basically destroys it, turns it into femininity. And then the pendulum swings the whole way to the other side when you over-feminize society. You'll get men like Andrew Tate, who, for everything good that he says about men taking back control of their lives and making something of themselves, he brandishes this horrible, toxic view of women and then calls it masculinity. Regardless of your views, in a day where we cannot get answers to simple biological questions, if we're asking what is a man, 
the answer still has to be found in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ should be our only true example of masculinity, of manliness. Not Dylan or Andrew, not David or Solomon. And yet we need to exemplify that same picture of Jesus so that when people look at us, they can see the image of God. The whole means of what I think God's intention for identity and sexuality was, you can sum up in Genesis chapter 1. It says that the image of God was placed in one man and one woman. And I think about that, and I, you know, I think as Christians, we've heard that since we were, you know, three and four years old. Um, but when you stop and look about it, how is the image of God reproduced in one man and one woman? Well, through sex. Mm. Because when a man and a woman have sex, it creates life. God is a life giver. So isn't it interesting that the image of God is placed in each one of us, but we're only half of a whole? Because when the two come together, they become one flesh, whether we do it the right way or the wrong way. But according to God's design, a man and a woman in a committed lifetime relationship produces life. And so anything outside of that destroys the image of God. So it's not just the LGBT issue. It's also, you know, abortion. It's also divorce, you know, premarital sex, masturbation, pornography. All of those destroy the image of God. And it's interesting that that the movement, these contemporary identities that are out in society now, basically are about destroying the image of God. And if you can destroy um, a male, like transgenderism, destroys the male by, you know, amputating basically his male parts and putting them on estrogen and make it appear something different than what God intended. Um, for a woman, she's going to remove her breast. She's going to have a hysterectomy. It destroys the genitals that actually create this life. And, you know, when you look at homosexuality, Two men together doesn't produce life. Two women together don't produce life. And even though we have test tube babies and we could do artificial insemination, it destroys the image of God because his intention was for a man and a woman to represent him fully. So I believe that the biggest issue about identity and sexuality, and, and it's not exclusive to the LGBT thing, because I want to be very clear, we're not picking on one group of people. I think the issue is that contemporary society is really picking on the savior who really has already died to fulfill to bring us back to the image of God which I believe is is what has happened ever since you know the Garden of Eden you know we kind of messed up there and so from Genesis to Revelation is about God restoring us back to his image which has been lost um I think of second Timothy 3 verse 5 it talks about how um there's a group of people that have a form of godliness and when you look into the context of Second Timothy, it's talking about at the end of time. And so that has an application if you believe that we're living at the end of time. But it, it says that there's a group of people that have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. And I have to think to myself, what is the power that they're denying? And I, and I think about how there's gay Christians now, and we have um, this whole movement that, you know, w when I came out of the gay culture, it was like, God hates gays and that gays are going to burn in a hotter hell than everybody else and that there's no hope for them and gays can't change. So now, you know, several years later, now the attitude is gays still can't change, but God loves them because they can't change. And because they can't change, it's hate speech if you tell them that they can change. So it's interesting, these two opinions, you know, God hates them because they can't change. And then over here, God loves them because they can't change. And when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they made this group of people exclusive to say that God hated them and denied them that there was change possible. And then now over here, they still made that group of people exclusive, but now they cut them off from the power of Jesus Christ to transform them and to restore them. But they say that that's out of love. And so when I look at that, I look at verse 11 in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it says, but such were some of you. And that's not just talking about the gay community. It's talking about the porn addict. It's talking about the adulterer. It's talking about the, the ones that are, um, you know, uh, licentious, the ones that are thinking about sex all the time or whatever, that even the murderers and the gossipers, it, it, it's talking about that group of people. And it says, you used to be that way, but you're not that way anymore. 
So 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, I think, is, is an attack on the power of Jesus Christ to restore us. So if I, as a Christian, have a form of godliness but deny the power of Jesus Christ to transform my life or your life, Dean, then I've cut you off from that image of God that, that we're in pursuit of. So that's not really a message of love anymore. Right. It's really, in its sense, a loving message of hate. There's a, a quote that I love, and it says, do not wait to feel that you're made whole, but say, I believe it. It is so, not because I feel it, but because God has promised. And when I took my feelings and put those aside and really stood on the word of God, that's where I found the transforming power. That's where I found, you know, the faith to really move on. That's where I found something more than the thoughts and the feelings that drove me. Um, because your feelings will mess you up every time. So if I rely on my feelings, they're only going to deceive me. Jeremiah 79 says that the mind is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You know, you can't even know it. So if I allow my feelings to tell me who I am, um, there's just no way that uh, we're going to find continuity or consistency. And because your mind is going to tell you something different than my mind. And now that we have this uh, contemporary idea that there is no truth anymore, that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, you know, we're all mixed up and we have absolutely nothing to keep us cohesive and to drive us, you know, in the same direction. And I believe that the word of God was provided for just such a thing. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And you've just heard our latest show. If you'd like to hear more or harken back to a previous episode, you can find us now at wtdtpodcast.com. If you've been moved by this ministry through this episode or others, and you'd like to support us financially, you can become a patron. And if you do, you'll get early access to our episodes, discounts on our store, and access to our other podcast, a 40-day devotional podcast designed to kickstart your walk with God. We're calling it WTDT40. If this sounds like something you're interested in, or you just want to support in general, visit patreon.com forward slash WTDT to find out more. As always, please do subscribe, leave us a review, and follow our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, and now TikTok too. We'll see you on the next episode. Once again, I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That.